0: Let's get started.
1: Scott here. There are many activities associated with astronomy that take nothing more than one's eyes and the willingness to step out under clear dark skies. As autumn continues toward winter, it is even easier to step into the dark at a much earlier time in the evening. Of course, unlike summer months, a jacket could be quite useful. So donning my jacket, I proceed outside to scan the skies for my traditional markers for finding my directions and getting myself oriented. The Big Dipper lies close to the northern horizon in the evening sky, but I have used it often, as I have mentioned in some of my other broadcasts, to find Polaris the North Star. And Polaris doesn't move throughout the night and throughout the year. If I face the direction that I have determined to be north from my front yard, I can lift my eyes up just over a third the way up from the horizon and pick up the north star again. Fortunately, it is a lone star, but not overly bright. Now that I have verified the direction north, then west, south, and east are easy. Turning to my left, and thus west, I begin to look for planets. In the early evening skies of November, two planets may catch your eyes as bright points in the southwestern sky. But if you get out before it actually becomes dark and have a flat southwestern horizon, a third planet may be glimpsed there. Jupiter and Saturn are the easiest planets to spot. Jupiter is closer to the southwestern horizon. Saturn is low in the southwest, almost around toward the south. But attempting to make its presence known in the southwest is the planet Venus. At present, in its orbit around the sun, Venus is on the far side of the sun from us. But as autumn moves into winter, Venus will move farther out along its orbit and away from the setting sun to become the dominant planet in the southwestern sky. To get a real sense of the motion of Venus along its orbit, Venus will be passing Jupiter over the evenings of November 23rd and 24th. It will overtake Saturn through the second week of December. Explaining the dance of the planets was one of the challenges of the ancient peoples and was eventually explained in more modern times, well, In the Renaissance period anyway, by folks like Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, and Newton. Adding to all of this planetary dancing will be the addition of the moon, as it glides past each in turn in late November from about the 27th through the 30th. The moon will be a waxing crescent moon, which can, when it is placed near any planets, make for a very pretty sight in the evening sky. Meteor showers are one of those events that take no equipment. Patience is more than need as one never knows when a streak of light will pass through the starry sky. Near the peak of one of the better known showers, one can be a bit more successful because there is a higher chance of seeing these elusive streaks of light when many more are in the sky. November boasts two noted showers. Early in the month, the tarid meteor shower contributes to the night sky. This is a sparse shower with no well-defined peak date. The Taurids can be active from mid-October through the end of November into early December, but they have the advantage that the radiant point, that position in the sky where the meteors seem to originate, is above the horizon as darkness comes. There are actually two Taurid meteor showers. They overlap, and to the casual observer, simply seem continuous for an extended period of time. The southern Taurids seem to have several peaks, one around October 10th, the second around November 1st, and the last around November 15th. The northern toroids peak around November 3rd. So, collectively, the two showers can provide some extra shooting stars over an extended period of time. The meteor count of the toroids is not what makes them interesting. From time to time during the weeks when they are active, one might glance a fireball, a really bright meteor. Fireballs are much rarer than the -the run-of-the-mill shooting star and can be quite impressive. As with the more traditional meters, there is no guarantee of success catching one. But there is zero chance of catching either if one sits on the couch watching television. The tards will be at a disadvantage this year because of the light of the moon. The moon can be a pretty thing to see in the sky, whether it is a thin crescent above the western horizon just after sunset, or a full moon rising majestically in the east after the sun has set in the west. But the more light that is present in the night sky, the fewer faint objects can be seen, and meteors fall in this group. Brighter meteors and fireballs mentioned earlier can be spotted under moonlit skies, but these are rarer and therefore not as common as the dimmer shooting stars. So the sparse taurids may be a challenge to see because of a moon in the sky this year. This may also be the case for the more active and better known leotid meteor shower. The Leonid meteor shower can produce some 10 to 15 meteors per hour near its peak. This kind of activity wears less on the patients, especially if one is out on a chilly autumn night. This year, the moon will be about 80% full at waxing gibbous phase and will be rising around 8.30 p.m. This puts it in the sky during early evening hours, and it will not set until after sunrise. Since it will be in the sky all night long, this will cut down on the number seen. When I plan one of these trips into the night to see a meteor shower, I take along a comfortable chair or even a cot to make it easier on the neck. A blanket on the ground will do, but there is always that damp dew to deal with if a blanket is used, but it is an option. Once comfortable, I simply scan the sky slowly, chatting with any others that want to share in the adventure. This is a good time to look for constellations that may be visible in the sky. If there are planets above the horizon, one can scan for those as well, all the while scanning the sky for meteors. Many is the time I have been out with others and I heard them shout out, there goes one, and I was looking in the wrong direction. So a slow scan, noting what is above my head while not straying too far from the task at hand, is most successful in finding this elusive
0: quarry. Well, that was Professor John Scott Miller of Maysville Community College telling us about the November night sky. Now we're going to finish listening to the farm panel from last month's Food Justice Conference put on by Louisville Sowers of Justice. The first part of this discussion was on last week's show, October 28, 2019, so check that out. The second part is a little more controversial, though, so have a listen. First, you'll hear from Wendell Berry, noted author and small farm activist, and then Hoppy Hinton, a farmer from Woodford County, and then you'll hear from Mary Berry of the Berry Center.
2: I wonder if you're on. All right, well, the fundamental problem that we're dealing with is that any kind of land use by humans, whether you're talking about a farm or a road project, has to be judged by an ecological standard, a natural standard. The standard being health. The idea, the idea of justice in agriculture, farming, I suppose would be that you would have a joint relationship between the land and the people in which they would participate in and benefit from the mutual health of their land and their families and communities. Justice is a word to stay away from, in my opinion. It's been worn out. People throw it around as a kind of synonym for good. Anyhow, wars, you know, are great instruments of progress. And at the end of World War II, we had developed a great capacity for mechanical and chemical technology. And uh, war ended the market for war machines, and chemicals, or at least it greatly diminished. And uh, the production of those things, in order to keep the corporate economy afloat, uh, had to be diverted somewhere, and it was diverted to agriculture. And then emerged a doctrine that machinery and chemicals could replace people in agriculture and do as good a job. Chemical fertilizers, chemical poisons, and ever-larger machines. Mary was just talking about our judge executive. I just heard him say that he's come under pressure from some of the bigger farmers to take the guardrails off the county roads so they can get their equipment through. There's a parable. <laughs> then, emerged another doctor and that was that there were too many farmers who could be easily replaced by technology. Too many farmers, that was calculated because there was only so much income in farming, and there were too many people to divide it up among. i never heard apparently to these people that they might have increased the price of food. No, the price was the stable thing and the population was the changeable one because, you see, they already had another policy in place, and that was the cheap food policy, which amounted to uh, a promise by the government to exploit farmers on behalf of the consumers. And this brings us to a problem that calls for more intelligence than than, uh, the leadership has had so far. (laughs) That is that food is too cheap from the standpoint of the land and the farmers. Too expensive for poor people. I don't know anything to do about that except just hold it in mind see what occurs. But anyway, how do you get rid of three or four million farm families? Well, we're kind in our country. We don't kill them. (laughs) Nevertheless, we deal. We're a realist in our country. And we deal with the fact that we've got too many of this kind of people. And so... We simply allow them to succeed their way into failure. With the help of these miraculous chemical machines, we help them to produce more and more. And the way that works psychologically is that everybody then, in the production of a certain commodity, produces all that he or she can. And so the weapon to get rid of all those farmers has been surplus production which drives down the the market price of the commodities, which is a huge benefit to the corporate economy. To produce the surplus takes a lot more equipment and chemicals than you'd otherwise need, and that's a huge benefit to the corporate economy. If you get rid of all these farmers, they swell the labor pool, start working people competing against each other for wages, drive down the cost of wages, which is a huge benefit to the corporate economy. And it increases the number of mere consumers, reduces the number of producers, and increases the number of consumers, which everybody's known for a long time. is a bad equation, a bad ratio. Confucius said it a long time ago, the country's going to be healthy as long as the producers are many, and the mere consumers, very few. So all this is in place. This is the the version of agriculture that's subscribed to by the government, by the government bureaucracy, by the College of Agriculture, uh, colleges of agriculture, that's the intellectual establishment of industrial agriculture. Uh, The consumers take it for granted. The uh, farmers pretty much take it for granted. This is reality and it's tough. And of course, the uh, corporations are enthusiastic about it because they've gotten rich at the expense of deserving people. How would you go about bringing justice into this mess? Well, not easily. (laughs) And not quickly. It's a good idea, though, to define what justice would be if we had it. And that would simply be the health good health of the land and the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. <hand> Thank you. Let's now begin a discussion. Are there
0: questions? Are there arguments?
3: I, I, I,
1: Hoppy wants the mic. One, one second. No, one
0: second.
3: Because I I think there's several things that come up. Uh, One, Mary's issue of of, of the parity issue and the the supply management and the discussion that Wendell's talking about. With the demise of the tobacco program, whether it was intentional or by accident or whatever, the tobacco program ended 12 and a half, 13 years ago. Prior to that, in a little state like Kentucky, there were thousands, close to 50,000 actual active tobacco farmers in all through the city of Kentucky, only Martin County didn't have a tobacco production going on. And you look today, in the, 19, in the 2019 year, there's only 2,300 farmers actively raising tobacco. That's a good example of what has happened in a microcosm when you lose a program that was designed to limit production, create some parity, and that's the reality that took place. And that's putting a lot of pressure on Kentucky agriculture because those farmers who are making a family living, raising four, five, six, ten acres of tobacco, maybe 12 acres of tobacco, are now either working at GE, or wishing they were working at GE, or driving school buses, or in fact trying to do the same that we're doing in these farmers markets, of competing with each other, and so these micro markets that are going on. On the issue of parity and supply management, one of the things that we've talked about, and very and I have talked about is, while we have the will, the reason that a tobacco program or supply management work, program works like in Canada mm-hmm. or in Europe is you have to have government intervention. It will not happen on its own. We as in competitive nature will always shut out, produce each other in the system. So the reason that a tobacco program worked was you can raise all the tobacco you wanted. You didn't have to participate in the program but USDA had the ability to fine you $1.36 a pound, tobacco was bringing $1.80. You could sell all the tobacco you wanted to out of Oregon or Canada or anywhere you wanted to, but we could penalize the production through federal legislation. So in order to make a justice system work, and whether whether you fantasize about a Canadian system or a European system or no system at all in New Zealand, you've still got to involve a, a systematic change in how the government deals with agricultural policy. And without that it is every man for him or herself.
2: that's right. And what, what we get what we've got now is a lot of little farms on which decent people made decent livings. they're covered up the soybeans for corn now. And one of the remarkable things about this change, poppy, is that the uh, the whole concept of the right doing things at the right time has disappeared so on these these one-time decent little farms you see tracks two feet wide and two feet deep where they dragged the combine through the mud are
4: you done (laughs) (laughs) no
2: but i quit
4: to say I just wanted to say two things about what we' what we're talking about um, one is because what I think this meeting wants to talk about is health part of and health is of course important during the years that we were all involved with uh, trying to get um, get our farmers to, and I was one, to transition beyond tobacco so they could survive the end of the tobacco program. There was a lot of talk about health. It was said that, I, I don't believe we lost the tobacco program because of health, but that was a part of the argument against it, and I'm not here to defend tobacco by any stretch, but I do defend the program but we didn't sacrifice our small farm economies in our little towns and our land for health we sacrificed it for corn and soybeans so to give you an example a road that i take pretty often to come to louisville actually from newcastle where my office is um, one morning i couldn't drive on the road because uh, it had been plowed for corn and soybeans i'm not sure which that year one or the other and there was so much dirt washed out in the road, they had to get a bulldozer to move it out of the way of the traffic. That's not a trade for health. Uh, the other thing is just to just to tell you, just because it's on my mind, the Berry Center is in the process of buying a farm for our education program. And the farmers that own it, Dalton and Anna Brown, have spent a lot of time with this summer, and it's been the highlight of my summer. When I was talking to Dalton about his years, his 60 plus years on that farm, he's 94, he said, we made a good living on this farm. We worked hard, but we made a good living. Now he worked in the tobacco warehouses in uh, in this winter, one tobacco warehouse. To my knowledge, and worked, uh, was a farmed and uh, raised a huge garden and put up most of their food and so on. I don't think other than that, there was any off-farm income necessary for that farm. And that has struck me when I'm in the process now of, of being involved with young people who want to farm. All I can dream or hope for for them is that someday they can say, "This, oh, we made a good living on this piece of land. That, by the way, is probably better mm-hmm. now than when Dalton bought it. I don't know that for sure, but it makes a good story to yeah, end that way." Yeah.
2: <laughs>
4: yeah, I suspect it has.
2: So.
4: There wasn't yes a question.
3: Uh, I'm increasingly concerned about farmland being taken up by subdivisions. And I understand a lot of times it is elderly farmers and the next generation does not want to farm any longer and maybe sees quick cash for the descendants. But could the government speak to that or anyone on the panel speak to that? I I just worry where our food will come from in the future.
0: Hoppy will speak
2: to the Bluegrass Land Conservancy or whatever (laughs) he thinks he wants to speak to.
3: The horrible joke for lots of farm families is the final crop is a vinyl village. <laughs>
4: and uh,
3: and the, the other joke, of course, that farmers tell is you, know, you, you know you live you live you know uh, live poor and die rich or you sell the farm at the end. And land, of course, is our asset, is our retirement system, is our health care system. It turns out to be all the things that happen as generational changes take place because. Whether we're making enough money or make an adequate amount of money or whatever, however you want to define it, most of us in agriculture are not putting away money into sort of a retirement system or a 401k or all the things you hear about. So as the price and the agricultural problems happen, conversion of farmland to an alternative use or to investment aspect takes place. On the other side of the coin, we have, as Wendell points out, and Mary points out, for most commodities and most agriculture, the problem that most farmers face today is oversupply. We have excess capacity, even as we reduce reduced the number of farmers and the amount of land. And the, the price of beef and soybean and corn and rice and cotton are at record lows. Now, we're dependent upon export of this commodity, like we're exporting you know, the raw product off our land. But uh, fear not that there's not going to be enough food the issue of, of land preservation for agriculture can't really take on the fact there won't be enough food to eat enough agricultural capacity it has to take on other issues about what we want woodford county or oldham county or jefferson county to look like and what are the consequences when you turn your your farmland into the vinyl village mm-hmm. i'm not sure i fixed any of that there are conservation programs like the bluegrass conservancy farmland trust where farmland has been produced, has been preserved, where you sever the ownership of the land into several parts, one being development rights, and it's possible that you can transfer the development rights uh, off the farm, continue to farm the farm, and you continue to sell the farm or operate the farm for agriculture, but the development rights have been severed, often held in perpetuity, so those lands will be preserved, and in some cases they're purchased, and in some cases they're given for tax advantages. But a PDR program, purchase development rights, is probably the one that makes most sense for the average regular farmer. The donation because you need a and it may fit well for those who are tax bracketed up there. But mm-hmm. so we need some kind of program like that, and I think that's something that's been funded minimally by the uh, by the state under the PACE program, by American Farmland Trust and Conservation Group, perhaps Conservancy, uh, is one that takes donations. But that's an interim step. And it doesn't really address the issue you're talking about. I'm, I, I talked in circles about that, so <laughs> we'll
0: see what happens.
2: You can, there's not a parallel program for the preservation of the people. You can preserve the farmland, where are you going to get the people to go on? It? That's right. I want to tell you that this Trump election has really opened my eyes. I thought that the liberals would be sort of on our side. I I read the Daily New York Times and a number of other periodicals, and I can tell you the conservatives have all pillaged the countryside. They've been at that uh, big time since the Civil War. I hadn't realized the extent to which this is just fine with the liberals. They don't like rural America. They don't like rural Americans. The only difference between the liberals and the conservatives is that the Liberals would like to make three exceptions to the general economic violence that we live in. They'd like this great juggernaut of destruction of the country to stop in its tracks and uh, develop a tenderness for wilderness areas, favored minorities, and women. It ain't gonna happen. You can't stop this. You can't stop a monster in its tracks and ask it to be tender to somebody. It ain't going to do
0: it. I, I keep waiting for the optimistic <laughs> answer. <laughs> uh,
2: the environment is going John Cumbler, who is a fan of Wendell Berry, uh, by the way, uh, made this point. He even likes the idea, he believes that Kentucky farmers growing organic food can make a decent living. So somebody
4: answer that question, please. Well, of course, some can how many can is what? the question and for how long they're competing against each other my husband may paid off his farm with the csa and he was raising organic vegetables when he stopped his csa in 2005 he gave his customer list and his help to a young farmer who's still running a csa that young farmer is having a heck of a hard time selling enough subscriptions to make it because he's competing in a way steve wasn't steve was what we call what is it daddy a first adopter something like that some people will make money and some people will do well and i'm I'm not speaking ill of those people but if we're serious about an agriculture that doesn't destroy the land and the people then we're going to have to think about systems that work for farmers to move food I think it was Erica Allen who talked about uh, waking up after 9-11 mm-hmm. about how insecure we really are. It's going to be awful hard to take care of our urban places if our food, if the lines of delivery are broken. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Louisville was fed by the landscape around Louisville? It mm-hmm. could happen. Maybe not for everything, but it could. It, we certainly could supply them with meat. But nobody in high places is thinking about it, so the answer to your question is yes, some people will make some money. Maybe if we run out of oil tomorrow, a lot of people will make money, but we're not going to. So so I'd say a few can make money and everybody else can go to hell, Absolutely. given the way people feel about the situation.
3: I'm waiting for the optimism. Well, there is, there, is some, there is some optimism because in our farming operation, all of our corn goes to Woodford Reserve Whiskey, so you can drink whiskey and eat cornmeal and it comes from my farm it's got the name on the bag and so drink more whiskey
0: well that's the show this week thank you for listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science we think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it science truly empowers all of us If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.